This episode of Talking Indonesia was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people. The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia. My name is Gemma Purdy. On the 11th of January this year, President Joko Widodo gave a nationally televised address in which he accepted the recommendations of an ad hoc team recently assembled to consider the non-judicial resolution of past serious human rights violations. Jokowi acknowledged that 12 historical events of gross violations had taken place and expressed his regret and sympathy for the victims. On the list were the 1965-66 killings, the extrajudicial killings of criminals in the 1980s, kidnappings and disappearances of students in the late 1990s, and a small number of named events in Aceh in the late 90s and also Papua in the early 2000s. The presidential statement included a commitment to recovery and restoration of rights of victims and to ensuring that such events do not happen again. What is the significance of Jokowi's acknowledgement and why did he make it now? How has it been received by the victims, their relatives, and the human rights community in Indonesia? And does it signal a step towards further processes of truth-seeking and accountability for past human rights violations? To answer these questions and more, my guest is Sri Lestari Wahuningrum, author of Transitional Justice from State to Civil Society, Democratization in Indonesia. She joined me from the US, where she's currently Fulbright Fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Hello, Ayu. Thank you so much for joining us on Talking Indonesia. Hi, Gemma. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for having me here. You're very welcome, and it's actually well overdue. So thank you again. <laughs> thank you. Ayu, I think it might be nice for our listeners if we begin by explaining this term that is used a lot, I think, in discussions of resolutions of human rights violations, and that's transitional justice. Can you just explain to us a little bit what it means and why Indonesia needs this process? So in its simple definition, I think transitional justice is like an approach for a state to deal with its past human rights abuses, the burden of its history of their country. So the approach usually emphasizes on how state is choosing mechanisms to deal with it. So basically some ways or some mechanisms that can be taken, including truth-seeking or prosecutions, reparations for the victims and the society at large, institutional reform or security sector reforms, and some of it also do some like amnesties, reconciliations, and this kind of whole stops, you know, basically some measures that can help the state to and the society to deal with their past wrongs. Basically, it's, it's like that, yeah. And Indonesia, why Indonesia needs it? <laughs> because we have so much burden in our past. 
so the aim is not only to you know to resolve what happened in the past but also to ensure that it's not going to happen again in the future or in the near future and that more important also that the generations and the society learned what went wrong and stayed held accountable and and this is also important the accountability because if we don't have that then it's just going to happen again and we can normalize that you know as something that is well that it takes place and we apologetic to that and also important because then we can admit that there was injustice done to the victims to citizens their rights were taken by force and then that state acknowledge that and give back their rights then it also affects to the families and generations of the the families of the victims yeah absolutely we can talk more about that in a moment so jokowi's recent statement his acknowledgement of these historical gross human rights violations um what's the significance are you of his statement his acknowledgement why did he choose to deliver the message now do you think i think it is significant because this is the first time head of the state formally in public covered by mass media national medias openly said that yes there were events in the past where the state was abusive to its citizens to its people and that is something that has never been said before with uh, previous leaders there was also kind of like apologies and acknowledgement from Gusdur the Abdul Rahman Wahid on the television national television but he said that in his capacity as the leader of NU the Nadlatul Ulama the muslim organizations and when was that that was the early 2000s yes that was not long after he became president mm. um but then it wasn't as his capacity as a president so that's a bit of different with uh, what Jokowi did so in a way we we should appreciate what um, and it was a big decision i think when jokowi delivered this speech yeah i mean definitely had the impact as you say was covered across the domestic media but also internationally so that's significant why now are you mm-hmm. uh, that's interesting why now because he's been making this promise to settle cases of past human rights abuses since he was first elected in 2014 right so it was almost 10 years ago and then people has been criticizing why hasn't he fulfilled his promise but again the question is why now maybe there's some agenda for 2024 but also perhaps because he does really want to fulfill his promise or the third one might be because he has another agenda that he needs to finish and then this issue might divert or you know like people will turn to these issues rather than focusing on the other agenda which um, now the the big protest is on the undang-undang cipta kerja the omnibus law because he recently had this perpu presidential decree which actually it only applies in emergency situation where we don't have the emergency situation for the perpu to be uh, initiated right and the omnibus law has been annulled by the constitutional court so in a way the perpu is serve like more higher than the constitution so which is 
people has been criticizing a lot with that and he got really big protests on that big critics but then out of a sudden he took this moment to acknowledge the team reports on that so it could be any any possible reasons Gemma but yeah for sure I'm, I'm not really sure yeah We'll, we can talk a little bit more about the politics in a moment, I think. But I guess, yes, we can acknowledge the significance of this statement coming from the Office of the President of the of Indonesia, the Republic of Indonesia, and acknowledging, to be fair, it's just a list of 12 human rights violations and we know that there are others. So I guess that brings me to what are the main criticisms that activists and human rights organisations, victim yeah. survivor groups have had because they were very immediate and quite sharp in, in response to Joko's statement. Yeah, I think because this uh, team and at the end his acknowledgement, I think that's a, a shortcut option. It's it's really a shortcut and he well he's had almost 10 years to do things right, right? And then he didn't do much. The 12 cases were basically based on Komnas HAM uh, investigation, right? Reports. The Commission for Human Rights. Right. And the investigations was set up to go for the judicial, for the prosecutions, to be followed up by the Jaksa Agung, the Attorney's General's Office. But then it didn't go anywhere. The Attorney General's Office always returning back uh, all the documents to Komnas HAM, and it goes back and forth for many, many years. And then even... I think it was uh, Komna some initiative also to invite the UN Special Rapporteur, uh, maybe she's Flinterman, if I'm not mistaken, to look on what's the issues and whatever. They they did meet in Punchak to, you know, get some reconciliation. But I don't know, somehow it's stuck. I don't know how and why, because of this different perception on the kinds of justice that they want to proceed. The Komna some wants to do it with human rights justice and the attorney generals using the criminal justice, which doesn't matter because then the chain of comment and everything like that is just missing in somewhere. But it actually, yeah, not the substance, but the legal technicalities. Right. So they kind of agree that, the that yes, these violations occurred, that, you know, there were perpetrators, victims, all of the facts of the case, but they can't resolve them because they have different legal approaches. Exactly. And actually, this is the homework that the president needs to resolve it because the attorney general's office is under his authority. So he has to do something on that. You know, the Ministry of Law and the Ministry or the Coordinating Ministry of Politics and Law should be involved in this, you know, do something about that. But instead of trying to solve this, they just muffled the coordinating minister said that oh it's, it's stuck it's stagnated but you can't say that because you're the boss i mean you're responsible to solve it it's not for you to say oh it's stuck so we need to add to do it other ways and again and again the terms non-judicial come up again just to emphasize that we're not choosing the judicial we're choosing the non-judicial and that's why they make this team only for working for four months, three months or so, to produce a report based on the judicial reports from Komnasam, which is yeah. weird because that report is designed for prosecution. You cannot use that report to come up with some recommendation for compensations or anything like that. It's a different nature in a way. But if you 
want to come up with facts or or an, another report that can be used to set up recommendations for reparations, then you do this another mechanism called truth seeking, right? Uh, and truth seeking can be done if you do it properly. You do it with a, a commission, an institution, not a team, not an ad hoc team, but an institution, a commission. So usually this is the base for the, the truth seeking is uh, carried by a, a commission called truth commissions. Uh, some countries use it truth and reconciliation commission or truth and dignity commission or truth and history commissions, but it's a truth commissions, a commission that was mandated to seek truth basically of what happened in the past. And then the way you do it is that you are centered around the narrative of the victims because they were the one who who were taken the, the being injustice uh, done upon them yeah this is not the option that's been chosen because i want to get to that in a second but you know jokowi went ahead in august last year and established this team you mentioned that ad hoc team to investigate these uh, human rights violations to bring him a list of recommendations and a report and they've done that in a very short time perhaps you could just take us back a little bit to who and what makes up this team ayu that seems also a little mysterious i'm quite positive that um, some people from the ksp Kantor staff president, the uh, presidential office had this initiative because some of them were coming from the human rights background who used to be Komnas Ham's commissioners and also civil society NGOs, human rights NGOs that used to work with uh, issues on uh, past human rights abuses. And even some of them were victims of um, human rights abuses uh, and forced disappearance of activists. So I believe they suggest this format to the coordinating ministry, Mahfoud, at the time. And I, I remember initially there were some talks about the, a possibility to have a, a team for truth. And I was invited also in that meeting. But there was only one time meeting, uh, as far as I know. And then somehow the president came up with this team. So yeah, we didn't really know what the process were. Uh, how did it go, you know, with no public consultations, no victims' consultations. And then we knew that uh, they met with several victims with no clear criteria who's the victims, like which victims and which groups and which individuals that they will meet. But they did meet some of them and uh, try to get some inputs on reparations. So the whole thing, I think, of the, the theme is reparations. You know, uh, if we look on the recommendations, it's all about reparations, collective reparations or individual reparations. So it's nothing to do with truth. It's nothing to do with uh, justice, prosecution. It's about reparation. And I think that is what the minister uh, mentioned about the non-judicial. Truth-seeking is also non-judicial, right? But still, they don't do that task. They did the shortcut. I'm just afraid that this, at the end, will close the door for another effort or another initiative for doing transitional justice or justice in, in at, at large. Yeah. yeah, so it could be seen as let's draw a line under it now. We've spoken, we've acknowledged. In some of the criticisms, as you say, it was definitely there's no process of accountability, there's no truth-seeking, both those things you mentioned. There was also an observation that it was an acknowledgement of these events, but not really an apology, are you? And is yeah. that a subtle difference or not so subtle that's important? It's, it's, 
it's really different. I mean, for acknowledgement, uh, I think it's also uh, vulnerable when you say you acknowledge something that the public doesn't know. You know, uh, what what is the acknowledgement? Acknowledgement of what? We never had any reports. I mean, the report itself never go public. The Komnasam report cannot be public, you know. So acknowledgement on what? Nobody knows, right? And you never involve public for consulting and whatever. So, yeah. So no wonder like uh, Amelia Yani, for example, who is the uh, daughter of one of the general who were killed in 1st of 30th of September, who were very, uh, you can say, anti-communist, strongly anti-communist. And she objected to that. Like she said, like, um, wait a second. Who's, what acknowledgement is this? Like who's the victims? You know, like we were also victims. So see, the truth is not there. Yet you acknowledge it on something that is mysterious. Nobody saw the reports or anything like that, right? That is one. And it doesn't say sorry. It says sympathize. It sympathize with the with the victims. But again, what is sympathize? You know, what is sympathy? I mean, on what basis again? Sorry is, of course, uh, important, but sorry also is based on truth, right? So sympathy is like, it's like an individual kindness to <laughs> to <laughs> acknowledge something and, oh, yes, I feel, I feel bad. And sorry is, it's also taking accountability. Of course. Yeah, yeah, but sympathy is the individual attitude towards something, not the state. So not the level of the state, but sympathy is at the level of the individual of Joko Widodo, right? Yeah, I mean, there's gravity because he is the president, but yeah, yeah it's it's not the same. Ayu, you've written about this. You've been following it for a very long time. Indonesia's efforts, progress, two steps forward, one step back or many steps back <laughs> in pursuit of transitional justice since the fall of the new order, really. Are there currently alternatives, I guess, that exist? You have documented that after the fall of Sahato, there was this kind of this window of opportunity that, you, that you've written about where really good efforts were made towards these kinds of transitional justice processes, including a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, a Human Rights Court and ad hoc courts, right? Is there hope that these mechanisms will prevail? Yeah, so um, I think it was um, uh, Contrast, this NGO Contrast with um, ICTJ, who wrote the, the periods of transitional justice in Indonesia. So they noted that uh, 1998 to 2000 is the momentous change like this is the the moment where you know all the good response and possibilities for transitional justice existed but then uh, 2000 until 2004 it was the momentum of um, uh, consistently compromise between the elites especially the old elements of the regime and the new democratic elements so that includes between the military and the civilians leaders. And at one point, the Law on Truth and Reconciliation Commission was there, but then it was annulled. And then 2006 until I think the report was in 2010, everything was stalled. But then we know after that also, of course, there is something, but then it's, it's nothing again. So always uh, back and forth. 
So I've been reflecting a lot on that after I, I did my book. And then I wrote something else uh, just recently. It was published by the Oxford International uh, Transitional Justice Journal. And I argued two things. One is the choices of having this or that mechanisms is really part of the tactical concessions of the ruling elites at the time. So if we see why Habibi chose the ratifications of laws and having uh, laws on human rights and whatever, and then why Gustur having uh, a choice of having the trials for the Timor-Leste and Tanjung Priok, why uh, Megawati also do some preferences and not others, and SBY and Jokowi, because there's always another constant demand for something else. So it's the way they do the concession, tactically, strategically. And then the second one, I think it is also the nature of transitional justice itself. So it's like a, it's like a, what do you call that? Dua mata pisau? The... Like a double-edged sword. Yeah, so I think transitional justice also as an approach is very effective in giving the legitimacy for whoever is new ruler, new leaders. So when you had that uh, as an option, then it's like uh, uh, giving you a legitimacy to say that you are not part of the old regime, the repressive regime. So it's giving you a, a, new, a new kind of legitimacy. You know, when people distrust the old regime and then you have this kind of knife for you, and then you can claim, well, we had a distance with the past. You know, we're not saying whatever. And I think that is also, well, it's, it's in a way that is also how people are being smart using transitional justice for gaining their own purpose, right? Their own interest. And then yeah. once they do it, they, do, they did it wrongly. Like they had the trials for the uh, Timor-Leste and the Tanjung Priok, 1984 Tanjung Priok. 137 people were indicted, but zero was punished. So it's a total impunity. So when we're talking about accountability, there is none there, zero, mm -hmm. even though we have the, the, the mechanisms, the trials. And so they use it. The proof is there. They have not worked. Yeah, yeah. So they use it and then they use it for something else to give the impunities. So that's also the, I think, the critics that you, we should realistically look on the transitional justice itself. You know, it does give some kind of legitimacy for the new regime, new, new leaders, but also at the same time, you can just do it and come out clean. Yeah. So as you say, you've documented each, pretty much each president since the new order has had an approach. Okay, this is my approach to handle transitional justice. I'll deal with it this way. And in many ways, what you're saying, you know, rings so interesting because, you know, Joko Widodo was elected with very much a big, well, significant human rights platform, you know. Exactly. And he doesn't have any connection with the past regime, right? That's right. He was clean and he appealed to many because he said, I'm going to deal with Mm -hmm. the human rights injustices of the past, and I'm going to take action. There you are, very close to it all, knowing that until now, like, you know, almost 10 years in, he's finally acted, but it is disappointing. And I guess that's yeah. part of the response of the civil society uh, community too, who've been disappointed for many years already by Jokowi's position, and then 
to have him to deliver this, um, as you mentioned, shortcut kind of yeah. approach is, yeah, yeah. it's not yeah. enough. And, and always, you know, there's some, some the constant negotiation between the elites. That's, I think, one of the main characters of this transitional justice options from Habibi to, to now, Jokowi. So um, we can see um, there are always constant negotiations with the military elements, the, uh, uh, the, all those parties that have benefiting from the past abuses uh, economically or politically, including the uh, students' organizations in the past or uh, Pemuda Pancasila or um, political parties, Golkar and whatever, they are benefiting from what happened in the past, right? See, that's the thing, because accountability is not there. So we never really know who should be responsible on that. And the state just doesn't take his role to be accountable of what happened. And in a way, there is no change. You know, it's always the same interests. It's always the same elites. They just change their baju or dress. But it's always them there. And... One person like Wiranto can come out and say that, oh, you see, I've, I've never been found guilty. You know, I'm clean. I can run for president. I can run for anything, Prabowo and whatever. And yet the leaders use them to be part of the regime, right? So because like Jokowi, for example, he or Mega, for example, Mega needs the military uh, and all these influential generals to backed her up her leadership against the civilians that at the time you know looks like not really want her to become the leaders and constantly SBA also has the same so all these old elements um, Jokowi especially because he doesn't have political parties he doesn't have uh, roots in the mass he's basically he's a free rider right so he needs support strong support and these supports can only be given by the conservative elements, the old elements. So it's constantly having this negotiation, including in the team, the Pepeham team. If you see, there are also uh, names that were, you know, indicated for strong involvement in past human rights abuse. Like one is um, for Munir's case, the other one is in Timor Leste's case. So uh, this team is part of the negotiation itself. Wow. So they were military figures or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, there were one is um, uh, the bin people, one is the military were um, names were also indicted in the Timor-Leste trials. And other than that, some human rights activists, some scholars, professors, but we can see that it is the negotiations. Yeah, always will be compromised if you have... Those people at the table. Yeah, always compromise. And I mean, in your book, you and I actually had the pleasure of reading it as PhD. You really do so very well at documenting the way that the military, in fact, in the post-reformacy period, co-opted the transitional justice system or, you know, really obstructed it. I have a quote here from you where you said they're creating a pathway not to settlement of, of cases of past injustice, but to a dead end. So it's exactly what you 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 know saying about the strategic uses of the transitional justice mechanisms, and it feels very um, deflating to <laughs> to even think about that. 
This is like reflected when they were drafting the law on TRC, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. If we read the proceedings of the meetings, uh, it's obvious that they have interest on truth, which does not include the 65 uh, mass violence. So that one is when the military faction is still in the DPR. So you can see that that is so obvious how they try to divert truth and reconciliation is between elites. It's not reconciliation between state or perpetrators to the victims, but reconciliations among the elites. I mean, who care about how elite would reconcile themselves? <laughs> We're talking about victims, millions of victims. So yeah. Yeah. You asked what kind of alternatives, but mm. if we look, we do have a TRC in Aceh. So that is also a bit unusual because this unwillingness at this national level to have truth, to set up truth or to have prosecutions. But then at the same time, in Aceh, we've had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, have been doing their work since 2016. And Jakarta is just doesn't care but i mean if, if we're talking about transitional justice then you have one in Aceh, and you should support that even though it was the civil society who insisted to have the trc in Aceh, but we do have something there at the local level so i mean if that can happen why not happen in jakarta as well and at the national level because formerly when we still had the truth and reconciliation law the Aceh one and the Papua one uh, should be under the National Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But then the law was annulled, but yet we have the Aceh one. That's a winning, I think. The local have their own fight and struggle to get justice. And we should really learn something from there, you know? Yeah. So is that the answer? Is that the answer? I mean, you've written elsewhere and in your book also about how this, these state-led initiatives in some cases, but also the you know, national initiatives have failed. But locally, are there other mechanisms? Yeah, you know, you've got the TRC and Aceh. Yeah. Are there other examples of where these processes have worked or are well, underway? Um, there are some kind of like um, reparations programs, formal, sorry, like from the Palu mayor, Rusty Mastura, a few years ago, and then followed up by reparation programs. Also in Jogja, in Solo, there were some reparations programs. But again, because there is no national acknowledgement or the truth is just not set up formally, then the reparation fall into kind of like social assistance for the poor. So it's not reparations for victims of human rights abuse, but reparations for the poor. And it's totally different meaning. I mean, yes, the victims need reparations urgently because of their situations and whatever, and their health also declining. But at the nation level, we also need to set up and to learn something from the passing justice, right? So, yeah. So that is mm. still absent, I think. You, you mentioned that, I mean, the one, you know, from the, when you we said, what is the significance? And, and you were very gracious, I think, in acknowledging that some good things have come from the acknowledgement. Um, and one of those is maybe a pathway to reparations, which appeared to be the objective of the PPHAM. So in their recommendations, is there any map towards achieving no. this goal? Well, they did mention there are some 
things that need to be done, for example, gathering more valid data, but it's, it's not clear the pathway. I heard that the um, coordinating ministry is now coordination with other ministries to make uh, regulations in the ministry level for the assistance, but we still don't know. So this, this thing about the report is that people who knows it is only people who draft it, right? And other than them, we don't really know what's the plan and how to proceed, how to go forward with that. Yeah, so you, we only have seen the executive summary in what the president said in his statement. Yeah, exactly, exactly. What is interesting to me is that the coordinating minister, Mahfoud, he's had these kind of follow-up statements, like quite lengthy press statements. Um, What do you make of that, trying to clarify further? Yeah, I mean... I'm lucky enough to be here and meeting some people who have the extensive experience in working on transitional justice. And one of them is the advisor for Colombian Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Reparation is not that easy. You know, it's it's just, it's not one-off thing, you know. It has to be programmed and it takes a lot of resource and commitment, long-term commitment. It's not just something you did and then you done, you know, you can wash your hands and go. So you only have, now Jokowi only have less than a year now to do reparations with victims that are, many of them are not yet been, you know, in the data list and where the, the truth of what happened to them, what happened in the past, the abuses uh, is still unknown. So it's so vulnerable in a way. First, you don't know how, I mean, you know how the, the, the government in Indonesia bureaucracy, how it works. Uh, and it's already in the middle of the financial uh, term. And you don't just divert some money to give compensations for victims. You have to program that in advance, like a year before. And we have very rigid bureaucratic system, financial systems in Indonesia. And you just don't give some money to give reparations. You, you don't do it like that, you know. It has to be programmed. It has to be planned. You really have to know who will, will be benefiting, the beneficiaries of the compensation. Yeah, I mean, it's taxpayers' money. It's it's Indonesian exactly. citizens' money. You need to, you know, like make a proper account. So, yeah. and you only have few months, few months to do that. So, yeah, um, it seems improbable is, is the conclusion. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, right. Probably even the reparation itself would be a, a shortcut way, you know. That the shortcut, I think, it's it's using scheme that already existed, including the LPSK's um, uh, scheme for health assistance. But you know, to have scholarships or access to work or jobs or whatever out of that, I don't think that's going to happen. You know, right? Yeah. Will it be enough for victims and survivors? And and, and clearly... in the case of Colombia, they they really try to make it integrated truth-seeking prosecutions and reparations. So uh, they have separate bodies to work on that. But the reparations can only be done based on the findings and recommendations from the Truth Commission and, you know, prosecutions also. So it's integrated in a way. And that is also the case in, in other countries. Like, Chair, the head of the team, always quoting the Chilean uh, Truth Commission. But that commission is really doing truth-seeking with 35,000 something testimonies. And the the recommendation come up from that uh, investigation is reparations with a a set of really clear and, you know, programmed reparations. And 
that's why you need truth, right? Based on that, then you can develop what kind of needs does the victims uh, really need, you know, what kind of uh, assistance and who are the uh, the victims that can accept or uh, receive the assistance, you know. Who are the victims? Exactly. That must be um, yeah. very much at the beginning of the process. Exactly. But I, I mean, if we kind of just think again, step back and just acknowledge that this was a big moment, that the president listed these gross human rights violations, acknowledged them. Does that mean, do you think that we, you know, the reality is, you know better than anyone else, that talking about some of these human rights violations, and maybe we could particularly talk about 65, Mm -hmm. is still difficult in Indonesia. Do you think that by acknowledging 65 as one of the events on the list, there will be more space for intellectuals like you, for human rights organisations and others to speak the truth themselves? I'm hoping so. I think the acknowledgement really big deals for the victims, especially for the 65 victims. I mean, most of them already um, deceased with injustice. They've never heard of any head of the state acknowledging what happened to them. So when uh, Widod Jokowi uh, give this acknowledgement, I know that many of them feel relieved. But this is more at the personal level, but um, maybe not yet talking about, you know, nationwide. So even that small thing means a lot for them, right? Even before the acknowledgement, I, I've seen many other initiatives by civil society already there, even without the acknowledgement. So the 65 really is the toughest one because many of the beneficiaries of the 65 are still there. So, of course, they don't want the history to turn against them in a way. But we've seen many and more and more research has been done on this in any possible ways, including the second and third generations of victims who are also trying to find out the history of their families. Uh, there's also there's always ways, but you know when we make it formal. I mean, of course, uh, researchers, for example, uh, we still need some kind of access to ensure that the research will not be disturbed in many ways, right? Or when we talk about it in university, we need to make sure academic freedom is there. So in a way, with this acknowledgement, it could also be used, utilized in a way for that purpose. But yet, I think uh, even without the acknowledgement, many things have happened by the civil society. And somehow, I'm pretty sure that in one point, it will meet with the interests of the state. In a way, I mean, we've had the data, we have the testimonies, it's just it's spread out, you know. But if we can put them all together and then if Jokowi really wants to gather new data for the victims, then they could also utilize what's been there by the NGOs and the researchers that have already uh, done things about that. So in yeah. a way, it could also be an opportunity there. If this is a tough one, and a question without notice, but if you had a meeting with Jokowi tomorrow where he asked for your view on what next, mm-hmm. what would you advise? First, Truth Commission. I would say, hi, by Jokowi. <laughs> Just get the, truth, the, the draft of the Law on Truth Commissions ready by now. You've uh, set up the momentum. 
so you can't just let it go just like that you use the momentum to really set we need to truth otherwise what you said is nothing so make sure the fundament uh, is there first so set up the truth commission and then try to reconcile or, or settle that disagreements or different approach with the prosecutions so this this should not the acknowledgement should not be the closed door you know the closing door this acknowledgement should be the opening door for something else see for now i got the impression that this acknowledgement and the promise for reparation is to close the door so that i don't want you know i would say to jokowi this is not a you're closing the door you're not closing the door you are opening the door so use that momentum i mean even though you're not going to be the president but you set up something right and it makes it a responsibility for the next president to finish it that yes. is your legacy if you want to make legacy your legacy, legacy. is not acknowledgement yeah. that's the word you just got to use that word legacy because he loves yeah. that legacy yeah. so i think that's that's the hook <laughs> i can't wait for you to have this meeting <laughs> oh thank you ayu i love that i thank i can see that happening fingers crossed serious and very important talks and very interesting thank you so much Thank you very much. I really appreciate that because it's timely and um, I mean, domestically, not so many people really interested in this because, you know, there are some other issues, as I mentioned, but yeah. I think to get your attention and having this, I really appreciate that. Anytime. Thank you, Gemma. That was Sri Waningrum, Fulbright Fellow at Carr Centre for Human Rights Policy and Director of the Centre for Citizenship and Human Rights Studies at the Universitas Pembangunan Nacional in Jakarta. Talking Indonesia will return on the 16th of February, hosted by Tito Ambio. Remember you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time... This has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.